I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, February 27, 2012. It's been a day of fact-checking. Wow. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and some of it is... Well, just deadly. I that, that's the only way I can put it. Uh, you know, here's the deal. It's clear by the fact that God has revealed himself in scripture and and in in the person of Jesus Christ that he wants us to know who he is. And he wants us to know what our situation is, how dire that situation is, how we are liable to God's judgment, and he wants us to know him rightly, to worship him rightly, and to know accurately who he is. He wants us to be forgiven of our sins, and he wants to save us. This is really what God, God's project is. Uh, you know, you can, I would turn to passages that talk about the fact that it is not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and the knowledge of the truth. These are, these are passages that we need to keep in mind here. Problem is, there's a lot of people in the church whose consciences are not bound to what God has revealed, and they're prone to wandering. And what they're substituting uh, sound biblical doctrine for are basically their own speculations, their own feelings, their own experiences, and putting them on par with Scripture or even human philosophy and things of that nature. And as a result of it, within the visible Christian church, the, the waters have been muddied, and there's no need for there to be muddy water when it comes to what God has revealed. The, the, the brook, the stream of Scripture, runs clean. 
This is pure water that that we can drink and imbibe of. And when you pollute it with false ideas, with false doctrine, when you pollute it with human speculation and philosophy or things that are contrary to what, what God has revealed, you make the water either undrinkable or worse, you you poison it. You poison it in, in a way that the person who imbibes of what it is that you've added to the scriptures, they, they imbibe it to, well, the detriment of their eternal soul. And so this program, uh, we try to have a little bit of fun along the way what we do, but sometimes there are just topics that I, there's no way to, you know, to take a lighthearted approach to it. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is that. It's there. I, there is no way to take this program lightly. Not this edition of Fighting for the Faith. There is a serious issue that has to be addressed. And if you've been watching, if you've been watching Facebook and Twitter and uh, the religious news, then you're aware of the fact that there is a huge story coming out of Orange County. And that huge story coming out of Orange County has to do with, um, well, with Islam. And the efforts of uh, of some of the people at Saddleback Church, and uh, and and well, for lack of a better way of putting it, there's uh, there's a lot of confusion uh, out there in the body of Christ as a result of of Rick Warren's bridge bridge building with Muslims, and uh, and the words and the language that he's spoken, and the words and language of people who are members of Saddleback, and so. Uh, the story that I'm going to be talking about today, and I don't even know if we're going to how long I'm going to do it. Um, it, it. This may not be like a standard format edition of Fighting for the Faith. That's all I'm saying. Just be warned. We might do the sermon review early. I don't know. I want to dedicate the first part of of the first section of Fighting for the Faith to this issue, and I want to do it correctly. And uh, and so we're going to be talking about a a story out of the Orange County Register written by uh, Jim Hinch entitled Rick Warren Builds Bridge to Muslims. We're going to take a look at that. Uh, we're going to look at the controversy regarding the article. Um, I have been in a private email conversation with Rick Warren and have spent f- uh, t- time on the phone speaking with uh, with the Orange County Register and those uh, who know Jim uh, Hinch and uh, and the evidence that he you know, collected in writing this story. And so there's a lot to talk about here and I want to take a look also at a uh, a document that came out a few years ago uh that was a response, the Christian response to a common word between us. Uh signatories on this document included Rick Warren of Saddleback Church and there's a common theme in all of this and I also want to spend a little bit of time correcting it. I uh uh, funny enough, I got like the relevant quote from a Lutheran theologian by the name of Philip Melanchthon. This is the gentleman who uh, who penned uh, the Augsburg Confession during the time of the Reformation, and so he was a contemporary and colleague of uh, of Martin Luther. And uh, and you can find the the quote that I'm going to be quoting from him uh, from the uh, the book that was put out a while back, but. Uh, translated by J.A.O. Preuss, entitled Loke Theologikai. Yeah, crazy name, but um, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's by Martin Chemnitz, but uh, Martin Chemnitz in his treatment of the Loki uh, oftentimes lets uh, Melanchthon's uh, comments on the Loki speak first before he then goes in and, and biblically backs things up 
and kind of cleans up some of the work that uh, Melanchthon does. Melanchthon was a little bit more rationalistic in some of his approaches. But anyway, uh, either way, uh, Melanchthon hits it out of the park on this particular issue. So we're going to take a look at that. And, and how are we as Christians to understand these documents and the efforts, uh, you know, the, like the common word between us, uh, the Christian response to it, and the um, the initiative that's being spearheaded by several members of Saddleback Church entitled The King's Way. So that's what we're going to spend our time looking at in hour number one or however long it takes. It could be shorter. It could be longer. I don't know. It's just, I feel like in some senses I'm winging it. Um, but I'm not. It, you know, I've actually spent a lot of time preparing for the program. And then what we're going to do uh, at sermon review time, last week I promised you that we were going to be listening to a sermon from C3 Church. Actually, they're out in Australia. Um, it, and, uh, you know, I think is it Oxford Falls? Uh, I'll get the uh, the city before we, uh, uh, before we go uh, live with our sermon review. But um, yeah, Oxford Falls in uh, in Australia, which is I think is, uh, in the general area of Sydney, Australia. But um, we're going to be listening to a, a sermon entitled uh, "The um, Well, w- What to Say uh, from a Cross," something to that effect. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's not a good sermon. It's a mishandling of the biblical text and the concept. If you're familiar with Jesus' sufferings, passion, and death on the cross. I think a lot of people in Christianity may have heard something about that. Uh, oftentimes, uh, Jesus' speech from the cross is referred to as the seven words. Well, this is the most miserable handling I've ever heard, ever heard, of uh, somebody trying to discuss this topic. And uh, and so that's what we're going to do in hour number two, or whichever, you know, whenever it gets here. Uh, again, this this today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I have no idea how the breaks are going to work or whatever. I just want to make sure that we uh, we cover the topic properly. So uh, with that, what I really recommend that you do is uh, sit down if you have the ability. You might want to take notes on this one because there's some complicated nuances to the story, and it's important that we we approach the topic responsibly and uh, and try to, in order to kind of tease out what's going on. So uh, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Here we go. From the Orange County Register, headline reads, Rick Warren Builds Bridge to Muslims. This is written by Jim Hinch. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the story first. I'm then going to point out some of the nuances of it that are not easy to, uh, to pick out and point out certain facts regarding Rick Warren's beliefs, okay, which I happen to be familiar with because... Uh, to, you know, to this day, from time to time, Rick Warren and I, we, ex- we correspond. That's probably the best way to put it. And, uh, and so, you know, the, Rick Warren is a person I've met with personally. He, and I am one of his harshest critics. And so I, I am not somebody who tries to get, give Rick Warren a pass on anything. Um, but this is actually turning out to be a far more complicated story than I had anticipated. And there's some nuances that everybody needs to be up to speed with so that we, well, we look at it properly. And we know what you know how to handle it properly. But Jim Finch writes. He says, uh, through the year, through years of outreach, Saddleback Church Pastor Rick Warren is part of an effort named King's Way that is attempting to bring evangelical Christians and Muslims together. 
The Reverend Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, is one of America's most influential Christian leaders. And he has embarked on an effort to heal divisions between evangelical Christians and Muslims by partnering with Southern California mosques and proposing a set of theological principles that includes acknowledging that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Yeah. Um, was that a collective gasp that I heard? Yeah. Here's the deal. We're gonna. I'm gonna circle back and kind of tease this out a little bit here. Okay. So Jim Hinch, the reporter for the Orange County Register. By the way, Jim Hinch is a veteran reporter. This is a man who spends a lot of time doing these types of articles, and uh, and so this is not him just shooting from the hip. But his interpretation of this King's Way initiative, which is spearheaded by several members of Saddleback, is that this is uh, this part of this is a, th- a set of theological that part of this King's Way initiative includes a set of theological principles that includes acknowledging that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. The effort, informally dubbed King's Way, caps years of outreach between Warren and Muslims. Warren has broken Ramadan fasts at Mission VA at a, at a Mission Viejo mosque, met Muslim leaders abroad, and addressed 8,000 Muslims at a national convention in Washington D.C. Saddleback worshipers have invited Muslims to Christmas dinner and played interfaith soccer at a picnic in Irvine, attended by more than 300 people. The the game pitted pastors and imams against teens from both faiths, and the teens won. The effort by a prominent Christian leader to bridge what polls say is a deep rift between Muslims and evangelical Christians culminated in December at a dinner at Saddleback attended by 300 Muslims and members of Saddleback's congregation. By the way, if you want to see uh, photographs of this, if the Islamic Center of Southern California has photographs from that event posted on their website and on their Flickr stream. And if you'd like to see it, go to Google and type in the Islamic Center of Southern California in the search bar there. And uh, when you get there, go to their blog and hit search and look for co-authors, ICSE co-authors historic interfaith document. ICSE co-authors historic interfaith document. So now let's continue with what Jim Hinch wrote, and I'll reread that um, that paragraph so that we can keep the context. The effort by a prominent Christian leader to bridge what polls show as a deep rift between Muslims and evangelical Christians culminated in December at a dinner at Saddleback attended by 300 Muslims and and members of Saddleback's congregation. At the dinner, Abraham Muhlenberg, a Saddleback pastor in charge of interfaith outreach and Jihad Turk, director of religious affairs at a mosque in Los Angeles, introduced King's Way, a, quote, path to end the 1,400 years of misunderstanding between Muslims and Christians, end quote. Okay, now, this is kind of an important piece of the data of all of this. The person who co-authored this document called The King's Way is a pastor at Saddleback, and this pastor's in charge of interfaith outreach at Saddleback. He co-authored the document called The King's Way with Jihad Turk, who is a director of religious affairs at a mosque in Los Angeles. Okay, And this was 
unveiled, discussed, and talked about at a dinner in December at Saddleback Church. Got it? Now, by the way, I have asked Rick Warren where I can find this document so that I can read it for myself. I think that's an important piece of this puzzle, and it would be important to read the document so that we understand the position. Now, I haven't I haven't heard back from Rick yet as to how I can view the document, um, but we'll see where that goes. So if I if I get it, you know, in the future, you know, I will respond accordingly. Anyway, uh, the, continuing with the story, the men presented a document they co-authored outlining points of agreement between Islam and Christianity. The document affirms that Christians and Muslims believe in one God and share two central commandments, love of God and love of neighbor. Okay, now I'm going to pause here for a second. It's totally within the realm of possibility Okay, that Jim Hinch, who is a journalist, misunderstood the document that points out that Muslims believe in one God and Christians believe in one God, that maybe he misunderstood that document to say that Muslims and Christians believe in the same God. Okay? Totally within the realm of possibility. All right? So here, so let me come back to it. So the men presented a document they co-authored outlining points of agreement between Islam and Christianity. The document affirms that Christians and Muslims believe in one God, share two central commandments, love of God and love of neighbor, the document also commits both faiths to three goals, making friends with one another, building peace, and working on shared social service projects. The document quotes side-by-side side verses from the Bible and the Quran to illustrate its claims. Quote, this is an important quote. This is the quote, by the way, is by Jihad Turk, the Muslim co-author of the document. Quote, we agreed we wouldn't try to evangelize each other, said Turk. Quote, We'd witness to each other, but it would be out of love thy neighbor, not focused on conversion. The story then continues. Saddleback representatives declined to make Warren available for comment. So the story was being written. They knew about it, and Warren was not available to comment on any of this. So what did Jim Hinch do to make sure that he had his facts straight and that he understood the story correctly as to what's going on? Well, he talked with Tom Holliday, who is an associate senior pastor at Saddleback. Um, so the story then says, so um, Tom Holliday, associate senior pastor at Saddleback, said the outreach to Muslim is part of Saddleback's peace plan, a wide-ranging effort to solve major world problems by mobilizing governments, businesses, and faith communities. Quote, this is us serving our own community with Muslims here in Orange County, said Holliday. We realize we don't agree about everything, and we're very open about that. You just recognize the differences and recognize the points where you can work together. Now, this is also another important point. Warren has faced criticism from some evangelicals for his outreach to Muslims. Late last year, Warren issued a statement flatly denying rumors that he promulgates what his critics term Chrislam a merging of Islam and Christianity. Said Warren, the rumor is 100% false. And this is, he wrote this at pastors.com, which is a website he founded that provides practical advice to church leaders. Quote, my life and ministry are built on the truth that Jesus is the only way and our inerrant Bible is our only true 
authority. Okay, now, if you would like to read the rest of the story, again, you can find it at the Orange County Register website at ocregister.com, and the name of the article is Rick Warren Builds Bridge to Muslims. Okay, so there's a lot of controversy about this, and the controversy hinges on the statement in the first paragraph that basically links Rick Warren with this initiative that acknowledges that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Now, here's the deal, okay? If you are familiar with Rick Warren's Twitter stream, and I, well, I, I follow it using, well, surreptitious methods, if you would. Rick Warren's blocked me from officially uh, following him on Twitter using my uh, pirate Christian account. So I've had to come up with creative means by which I can follow Rick Warren on Twitter because you know, he's blocked me. But that being the case, it's absolutely true that, le- that you know, late summer, early fall of last year, there was a flap out on the internet regarding, you know, claims that Rick Warren promotes Chrislam, which is this merging of Christianity and Islam. It's important to note that Rick Warren publicly, Rick Warren publicly repudiated the claims and affirmed his belief in the doctrine of the Trinity and that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And these claims are contrary to the claims, uh, you know, of Chrislam that, you know, that you get what I'm saying. So, so Rick Warren publicly repudiated the claim. So now how are we to interpret, how are we to understand this situation? By the way, um, Rick Warren has a long track record. There's many things that Rick Warren does wrong. Okay. He's a chronic and habitual Bible twister. He's a com- he's chameleonic. That's uh, Phil Johnson's term for him. Uh, his uh, his church methodologies and ecclesiology are well, they're directly contradicted by Scripture. Um, that being said, you know, pretty much I disagree with just about everything that Rick Warren does. Um, you know, but one thing is sure, uh, certain is somebody who's a careful student of Rick Warren. Rick Warren is a Trinitarian, okay? He's a Pelagian, but he's a Pelagian Trinitarian. And Rick Warren doesn't, uh, is, well, his beliefs are not compatible with Islam. Does that, does that make sense? So, I mean, that is just clear from the public record. So how are we to understand this? Is it possible that Jim Hinch misunderstood the initiative there? Don't know. Keep in mind that this initiative was not put together by Rick Warren. It was put together by Rick Warren's one of Rick Warren's associate pastors, Abraham Muhlenberg. Okay, now this leads to kind of an important thing in leadership. Since Rick Warren is all about leadership, this this has got to be stated really up front. Okay, one of the primary cardinal rules of leadership is the buck always stops at the top. Okay. Yeah, for instance, if things go wrong in the economy, who gets blamed? Um, uh, Obama's economists or Obama? Answer, Obama. Why? The buck always stops at the top. So here's the deal, is that it's clear that the actions and statements made by Muhlenberg and Jihad Turk Okay, in in this document called the King's Way, which I haven't seen, but Jim Hinch has, is that the impression that is created by this document is that this document somehow acknowledges that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. 
when they don't. Rick Warren is trying to distance himself from the Kingsway Initiative. It's clear that he's not the one who spearheaded it. He was not available for comment uh, for this story. Um, but he was commented as somebody who dispels the idea that he believes in Chrislam. The problem is, is that he's got people who are working for him who are creating the impression and people are drawing the conclusion that their theological principles include a concept that, that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Who's responsible for this? Answer, Rick Warren. Even though it's clear when you read the, the, the article fairly, one can make the claim that Rick Warren is not the one advocating this. This is Abraham Muhlenberg. The problem is, is that this, has got, this is associated with Rick Warren. Rick Warren runs Saddleback. He's the head. Uh, he's the guy, top guy at the pyramid. And this is all taking place on his watch. So regardless of whether or not Jim Hinch got it correct factually, the point is, is that this is what he believed this document points to, and this was a document forged by a man on Saddleback salary, uh, Abraham Mullenberg, on Rick Warren's watch, Rick Warren being the head of Saddleback. So Rick Warren, at this point, has a responsibility, okay? And that responsibility at this point is to make clear, unambiguous public statements in his own voice that that clear up the problems that are being created by this article namely that Jim Hinch and others who have looked at these efforts by Saddleback and this initiative called the King's Way are coming to the conclusion that one of the theological principles being put forward by Saddleback is that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. So Rick Warren must, must, must at this point, if this is not what he believes, he must step forward and make it clear that Allah and Yahweh are not the same God. And so the, at this point, you know, he might try to distance himself and say, well, this was done by, you know, somebody at our church. But the reality is it was done by somebody on staff at Saddleback Church, not a rogue member, but a person who is literally on staff as the pastor in charge of interfaith outreach. And that this document, The King's Way, is causing so much confusion that it's creating the impression that Saddleback is saying theologically that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. The buck always stops at the top. So Rick Warren is responsible for this, whether or not he believes in the doctrine of the Trinity and has taught it for 40 years. That doesn't matter. What matters at this point is that there is a lot of confusion, and this story has gone viral. And the person who needs to step up to the plate is Rick Warren, and he needs to make it clear what Saddleback's official position is and also make it clear that what he's going to do in order to dispel the confusion created by this Kingsway document. You, you understand what I'm saying? So here's the deal. Rick Warren, does not he's not off the hook at this point. Even though he's publicly said that he affirms the Trinity, and he did so again publicly on Twitter today, he has a responsibility to the body of Christ and to Muslims, okay, 
to make it clear that Christianity and Islam do not worship the same God. He has that responsibility. So he, it's not enough that he's talking the talk when it comes to Jesus being the only way and that, and that he believes in the doctrine of the Trinity. At this point, he needs to walk the walk and needs to publicly clear up the, well, the muddiness and murkiness in the water that's been created by one of the pastors on staff at Saddleback. And who's responsible for all of those pastors and what they're doing? Rick Warren. The primary rule of leadership, the buck always stops at the top. All right, what we're going to do right now is we're going to take a break. We're going to pause for a minute and uh, pay some bills. And when we come back, we're going to continue with this topic and take a look biblically at what the problem is with these interfaith dialogues with Muslims um, and, and how they're focusing on the, the so-called common ground that we have. Is that really common ground? Is it really common ground between our faiths? We'll take a look at that when we come back. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh. sacked the choir, and put Damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision and ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll, I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian jerks. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> uh, 
I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven Inquisition. In fact, those who our do... Chief ex- weapons are... Our chief weapons are... Um, purpose. Uh, uh, vision. Okay, and- okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now. How do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, Muslims and Christians do not worship the same God, and the details do matter. You can't gloss them. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world, and you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you will see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, what you're doing is signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute on a one-time contribution, you do that by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, so how are we as Christians to understand these these interfaith dialogues? And the, most recently, um, yeah, a few years back, you remember the, uh, the Muslim community sent out some feelers to uh, Christian leaders, uh, and the, the name of the document was A Common Word Between Us and You, okay? The Christians responded to this, at least several Christian leaders responded to it, and you can find this on the internet. If you type in Google, a Christian response to a common word between us and you, okay? 
there was a response by Christians. And I got to tell you, there's some big problems here, and I'll help you learn how to sort it out. Because, um, well, just let me let me read the preamble to this document that went out a few years ago, which Rick Warren signed his name to, along with other people at the time. So here here's the uh, the Christian response to the Muslim letter entitled "A Common Word Between Us and You." In the name of the infinitely good God, whom we shall love with all of our being, whom we should love with all of our being, preamble. As members of the worldwide Christian community, we were deeply encouraged and challenged by the recent historic open letter signed by 138 leading Muslim scholars, clerics, and intellectuals from around the world. A common word between us and you identifies some core common ground between Christianity and Islam, which lies at the heart of our respective faiths, as well as at the heart of the most ancient Abrahamic faith, Judaism. Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus Christ's call to love God and love neighbor was rooted in the divine revelation to the people of Israel embodied in the Torah. See Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 or Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. We receive the open letter as a Muslim hand of conviviality and cooperation extended to Christians worldwide. In this response, we extend our own Christian hand in return so that together with all other human beings, we may live in peace and justice as we seek to love God and our neighbors. Muslim Christians have not always shaken hands in friendship. Their relations have sometimes been tense, even characterized by outright hostility. Since Jesus Christ says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye, we want to begin by acknowledging that in the past, for example, the Crusades, and in the present, the excesses of the war on terror, many Christians have been guilty of sinning against our Muslim neighbors. Before we shake your hand in responding to your letter, we ask forgiveness of the all-merciful one and the Muslim community around the world. Man, got some problems there. Um, Where in the Bible is God, Jesus Christ, or the Holy Spirit referred to as the all-merciful one? If I were a Muslim reading this letter, it would sound to me like they were asking forgiveness of Allah. Okay. So now to the common ground section. Fast forward a little bit. What is so extraordinary about a common word between us and you is not that that its signatories recognize the critical character of the present moment in relations between Muslims and Christians. It is rather a deep insight and courage with which they identified the common ground between Muslim and Christian uh, religious communities. What is common between us lies not in something marginal nor in something merely important to each of us. It lies rather in something absolutely central to both, love of God and love of neighbor. Surprisingly, for many Christians, your letter considers the dual command of love to be the foundational principle not just of the Christian faith, but of Islam as well, so that much common ground exists. Common ground in some of the fundamentals of faith gives hope 
that undeniable differences in even the very real external pressures that bear down upon us cannot overshadow the common ground upon which we stand together. That this common ground consists in love of God and of neighbor gives hope that deep cooperation between us can be a hallmark of the relations between our two communities. We applaud that a common word between us and you stresses so insistently the unique devotion to one God. Indeed, the the love of God is the primary duty of every believer. God alone rightly commands our ultimate allegiance. When anyone or anything besides God commands our ultimate allegiance, a ruler, a nation, economic pressures, or progress, or anything else, we end up serving idols and inevitably get mired in deep and deadly conflicts. We find it equally heartening that the God whom we should love above all things is described as being love. In the Muslim tradition, God, the Lord of the worlds, is the infinitely good and all-merciful. The New Testament states clearly that God is love, and since God's goodness and infinite is infinite and not bound by anything, God makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, according to the words of Jesus Christ recorded in the gospel. For Christians, humanity's love of God and God's love of humanity are intimately linked. As we read in the New Testament, we love because he, God, first loved us. Our love of God springs from and is nourished by God's love for us. It cannot be otherwise since the creator who has power over all things is infinitely good. So there you kind of get the gist of the document. So here's the problem is that um, whenever the document invokes the, the word God, the Muslim's going to read it with the attributes and understanding of the Quran and its teaching regarding Allah, while the Christian is going to read that with the, well, with the doctrine of the Trinity in mind. Granted, they've even been taught it. Um, the problem is, is that it's glossing the differences. It's glossing the differences in such a way that it's saying that we have common ground in our love for God, but we don't. And by the way, Love of God and love of neighbor is not the foundation of the Christian faith. That's the summary of God's law, not the summary of the Christian faith. And it's and we're not saved by the law. It's the law that condemns us. So we've got a problem here. And that is, is that the so-called common ground that's being built and, okay, and by the way, these, the same common ground is referenced in Jim Hinch's article in the Orange County Register as the, you know kind of the primary thing with what's going on with this King's Way thing. And here's the problem, okay? Um, we don't worship the same God, and love of God and love of neighbor is not the thing that unites us. Ultimately, according to scriptures, that's the thing that condemns us and shows us our need for a Savior, okay? Now, I'm going to go backwards in time. I'm going to go backwards in time to the time of the Reformation, and I'm going to take a look at part of uh, Philip Melanchthon's Loke Theologicae, okay? Um, not that easy to get a hold of nowadays. I think you can still get them uh, you know, at uh, CPH. If you go to cph.org, and it's, you know, this is the Martin Chemnitz's uh, you know, uh, translation by J.A. O'Preuss that I'm referencing here. But back during the time of the Reformation, Philip Melanchthon, writing about God, says this regarding God, and he talks about the Turks. Whenever you hear the word Turk here, we're not talking about Frank Turk or Jihad Turk. We're talking about Muslims, okay? 
So back in the day, during the time of the Reformation, Turks um, were the chronic and habitual um, you know, battlefield enemy of uh, Western Christianity in Western Europe, and they, and they were coming from Turkey. So they, uh, they, they referred to Muslims as Turks. Okay, let me read this. Philip Melanchthon writes, he says, Thus, since Christ has been delivered, crucified, and raised again, and since the light of the gospel has been recognized, we make this witness our own, and we keep our gaze on his Son, and we learn from him these two points. One, who God is and what his will is. Thus, we wisely and eagerly separate our worship from that of the heathen and from the Turks and from the Jews. For true worship differs from false worship, particularly in these two very important points, the question of the essence and the question of the will of God. Even though the Turks, the Muslims, say that they worship the one God, the creator of the heaven and earth, Yet they reject the true God because they deny that he who sent his son as the mediator is the true God. Thus, they do not worship correctly. For there is an eternal and immutable rule set forth in John chapter 5, verse 23, Jesus stating, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. The Turks err first regarding the essence of God because they create for themselves a God who is not the Father of Jesus Christ. They also err in the second place concerning the will of God, since they are ignorant of his promises and they deny that the Son is the mediator. They remain in unending doubt and cannot be certain that they have been received by God or are even heard by him. Those who remain in this doubt do not worship God, but flee from him and run either into contempt for God or into eternal hopelessness. On the other hand, the church of God affirms that he is God and creator of all things who has revealed himself in the Son whom he has sent, in the gospel which he has given, and in the great testimonies which he has made, and which are recorded in the writings of the prophets and the evangelists. Thus a person first judges concerning the essence of God, not on a basis of human imagination, but on the basis of the word of God and the sure and, testimony, sure and certain testimonies which have been revealed to us in the word. In the second place, concerning the will of God, we know with certainty that the Son of God has set forth has been set forth as our mediator. With wondrous, sure, and indescribable wisdom, God accepts and hears us when we pray for the sake of the mediator. When these distinctions are kept in mind from the very beginning, which indeed must be considered every day in our worship, then we will correctly understand how God is to be sought, recognized, and worshipped, rather than on the basis of speculations. So here's the here's the rub, okay? No matter how much a Muslim or you know, interfaith documents or whatever between Christians and Muslims harp on the fact that, hey, look, Muslims worship one God, we worship one God. They say love God with all your heart, we say love God with all your heart. They say love your neighbor as yourself, we say love our neighbor as ourselves. Ta-da! We've got common ground. No, we don't, because the Muslim God does not have a son. 
the God who is revealed in scriptures, has a son, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, coexisting with the Father from all eternity, God of lo- God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. That's who Jesus is. And they don't have the same God. They can't. Because here's Jesus' own words. I'll quote this in context from the Gospel of John, chapter 5. I'll start at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel." For as the Father raises the dead and gives gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Muslims do not honor Jesus Christ as God the Son. They emphatically say that God, Allah, does not have a son, and they deny that Jesus' crucifixion really took place. So we've got a problem. When the definitions are compared, when the definitions are compared, well, what are we left with? A different God, and the details matter. The God of Islam, Allah, he is an idol. That's exactly what he is. But worse, when you consider this fact, that All religions that are man-made have this in common. They're all about the thing that you have to do to placate God, the works that you have to do. It's all salvation by works. Nowhere in in the philosophers, nowhere in the world's religions, including Islam, is there any concept or notion or even at the beginning of an inkling of the fact that God forgives sins and that salvation is a free gift given by God. Nowhere do you hear the gospel in philosophy, in natural religion, or in the religions such as Islam, Buddhism, Shintoism, Taoism, Hinduism, or anything of the sort. The world religions know nothing of the gospel. Nothing of the gospel. Absolutely nothing of the gospel. They know of the wrath of God. They know of God's judgment. Why? Because the law of God is written on the hearts of all men. This is what scripture reveals in Romans chapter 1. But they know nothing of the saving work of the gospel, of Jesus Christ, the God-man. That is an alien revelation that only comes to us in the words of scripture, only clearly taught for us in the words of found in the Old and New Testament. And all of it has its culmination in Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or clung on to, but emptied himself and became a man and died for our sins on the cross. Christianity's common ground with Islam is only common ground that condemns all of us, and that's God's law. But Christianity stands distinct 
from every religion on the planet because of the fact that Christianity and only Christianity teaches us that God is merciful towards sinners who have earned his wrath on account of the perfect, sinless life and vicarious penal substitutionary death of the God-man on the cross for our sins and that he was raised again on the third day. This is the gospel, and it's not found in Islam. So we really don't have common ground with Islam. They worship a different God, and their salvation is based on works. You can only claim real common ground with Islam if you're talking about the common ground of condemnation, not the common ground of reconciliation and a merciful and forgiving God. This is a problem. This is a big problem. So where are we at this point? Well, it's really clear. Okay, Since the buck stops at the top, Rick Warren of Saddleback Church must, must step up to the plate and clear up the confusion created by Abraham Muhlenberg, who is a pastor at Saddleback Church in this document called The King's Way, that has created the impression that there are theological principles that acknowledge that Christians and Muslims worship the same God and claim common ground based on the fact that Muslims and Christians believe that you're to love God and love neighbor. That's not common ground. And Rick Warren must make it clear that loving God and loving neighbor is the summary of the law and that condemns us and that salvation is found only in Jesus Christ and his forgiveness won for us by his shed blood on the cross and that Jesus Christ is the God-man. He must actually step up to the plate in the middle of this controversy and not point to his record but state according to the errors of this current controversy what the Christian faith believes. And so if he doesn't, then he's not walking the talk. What's the point in saying that you affirm the Trinity and you deny the errors of Chrislam when at the moment the controversy that's being created by this news story is casting a shadow of doubt, of doubt on all of that? It's time for Rick Warren to walk the talk here and dispel any of the questions and controversy created by the errors of this particular initiative called the King's Way. And I don't see any other way around it. Do you? No. All right, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate christian we'll be right back sermon review time and it's it's not good oh man it's not good at all relevance schmelevance we preach christ crucified for our sins you're listening to fighting for the faith pirate christian radio theater presents death of a salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. 
keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. There is an epidemic of narcissists going around. These seeker-driven megachurches, ones especially that flirt with the word faith movement, where they allegorize the biblical text, including the ones about Jesus, make it about you. Hang on to your hat. Here we go. The good and the bad and, well, the the ugly. Uh, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via C3 Church, Oxford Falls, Australia. Um, Mark Kelsey presiding. The name of the sermon is What Do You Say on a Cross? I don't know. What do you say? I mean, when was the last time you were crucified? Notice that when we start talking about it this way, crucifixion becomes um, something less than what it really is and was. And when you start talking about what Jesus said on the cross in this way and somehow allegorizing it and using it as an example of what to say when you're being crucified, figuratively, you kind of miss the whole point. You know what I mean? Shows that they don't understand functionally and biblically and doctrinally what the purpose of the cross is is it one big cosmic example for us to follow or was that the place where Christ was our substitute literally suffering the wrath of God for our sins in our place yeah that's kind of the difference between the two so anyway let me kill this music without any further ado here is Mark Kelsey and Talking about what do you say when you're on a cross? I don't know. What do you say? Here, here we go. Oh, it's such a pleasure praying with you guys. This is great church. You know, you're just so beautiful. Hey, what I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes. Um, I actually preached this message about four weeks ago on a Saturday night. And just recently. That would make him a repeat offender then. Recently, I was. You know, it was one of those things. I was sitting in my study at home, and I just had this random thought. I found that messages often come from the most random moments, don't they say? It's like, Josie, it's just like, like, it's not like you sit down, let's prepare a message, and, 
messages come from random moments. I thought messages come from biblical texts. Those are hardly random. You know, it's, 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 it's got to be, I believe that every message is a thought from heaven. And it just takes one little concept or thought. You know, you know I love that scripture in Isaiah 55, is, as his ways above our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts. And, and they are. Yeah, they are. And the Bible's chock full of those. Lots and lots and lots of them. Hard to master, even over a lifetime. Focus on those. Yeah, they're, they're awesome. And I, I take no credit for anything that I might preach because it's all his ideas. Of course, you know. Okay, so we're going to blame these ideas on Jesus. You don't like this sermon? Well, he got them directly from God. If you don't like it, then you can blame him. <laughs> but I had this thought. Jesus spoke on the cross. He actually spoke when he was on the cross. Yeah, really. Yeah, historically, those are the seven words. He said some things, which I find amazing. So I just began to study, and I discovered that there were seven things that Jesus said on the cross. Now, I don't know about you. If I was on the cross, I wouldn't be saying the things that he said on the cross. I'd be saying a lot worse things. It'd be just about me. I'd be, who hates pain? Notice already, you know, if it was me on the cross and the people are laughing, <laughs> it was me on the cross. <laughs> it wasn't you and you're not qualified to actually be our substitute for our sins. You're not God in human flesh. You're a sinner. You're part of the problem. You need what Jesus did on the cross for you. Like I just, just the thought of a needle coming towards me. And, and I'm freaking out and, and what have you. But, but just Jesus, in, in, in immense suffering, said things on the cross. And, and I, so I did this study. And, I just, and so the title of this message is, What Do You Say on a Cross? And as we prepare, now, please bear with me here. This is not like, I'm not predicting anything. I know that we're going to have the greatest year we've ever had. I believe that with all my heart. And I believe that we're going to have a year of great fruitfulness and abundance in which I believe that God is going to do the things and fulfill the things that we've been wanting deep in our hearts. But I also know that we're... God's going to fill the, fulfill the things we've been wanting deep in our hearts. Uh-oh. That all of us, on a regular basis, hit things. We, we, we have cross moments. We have moments of encountering a cross, and, and, and they are not, not self-made they're not things we look for. None of us are here this morning thinking, you know what? I'm really looking forward for some really exciting, tough challenges and, and, and God, some cross moments. And God, give them to me. I love pain. And you know, I mean, if you think like that, you're weird, you're mad, you're crazy. No, but they come. Now, it's important to note at this point that historically the church has recognized, in light of the fact that Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. There is a sense and understanding that we as Christians are to view ourselves as dead men walking. Take up your cross and follow him. That has a historical meaning to it. And you can talk about the cross that I must bear. These, this is perfectly legitimate language it, it, historically. Okay, And it's referencing suffering. Now, if you're really going to tie it back to Christianity, though, it's going to be suffering for the faith, suffering for the name, suffering for being a Christian, not just general suffering, as the, although the term many oftentimes is being used that way. 
That kind of misses the point. Don't they? But here's the deal. Often we spend most men, much of the time trying to get out of situations that God has actually put us in. And he is the one who's created them because on the other side of those situations, on the other side of those challenges are the very breakthrough that we're looking for. And really, on the other side of those challenges are the very breakthrough we're looking for. Um, yeah, the reality is, is that some people lose their lives through those types of experiences. And so cross moments, moments on our cross will come. And so I'm going to give you the next few minutes, the seven things that Jesus said on the cross and the seven things and seven a breakthrough moment, seven things that we can encounter as we go through our cross moments. The first, one of the first things that Jesus said on the cross is, it is finished. In John 19. Uh, wouldn't that be one of the last things he said? 19 verse 30, he said, it is finished. Everybody say, it is finished. And I believe that the, a cross, when we are on a cross, when we're going through one of those moments in God, that a cross moment, it is finished. It is an end of a season and the beginning of another season. Really, so that was what Jesus was doing. By example, he was showing us by saying it is finished that he was at the end of a season and getting ready to start a whole new season. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. The it is finished, I referenced this last week uh, with Brian Houston's mishandling of the same text. It is finished is, working, is talking about the finished, accomplished work by Christ on the cross bearing the wrath and penalty for our sin as our substitute. A new season begins on the other side of that cross experience. And it is only the cross that ends something and begins something. It is only that. We want it to end. We want it to do this and that. And we want to get to the other side of whatever. But it is only a spiritual cross experience that can actually cause the death of a season and the beginning of a new season. And Jesus said, it is finished. And he this is just lamentable. And he was predicting... He it was stating the end of a whole year. He was stating the end of a whole testament and predicting and declaring the beginning of a whole new testament, which we're in now. Who thanks God that he actually did that? And on the cross said it is finished. It wasn't like partly finished, sort of finished. I wish it was over. No, it was finished. Yeah, the end of one uh, testament and the beginning of a new. That's what that was. And in your cross with no explanation as to what he means by the word testament either. Cross moments, not as in cross moments, as in your moments on the cross, there's a, there's a finishing moment. And G even Jesus said, I love the scripture in Hebrews 12, verse 2. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Hebrews 12. One of my favorite books in the Bible is Hebrews. One of my pa pa favorite parts of the Bible is the New Testament. Sorry, I, I do this every time. Hebrews 12, 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Whoops who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I love that. The author, perfect of our faith, who the joy set before him, he could see on the other side of the cross, the thing that got him through the cross was the joy on the other side of the cross. And guess who the joy was? You. You were the joy. It wasn't, the joy wasn't relief. The joy was our lives in Christ in C3 Church on Sunday morning, he saw you, and for the joy of the changed lives of millions and millions of... Mm, the joy of the changed lives. How about redeemed sinners? 
thousands and billions of people, he endured that. See, you can endure anything if you've got knowing that this is the end of something and the birthing of something else. Yeah, see, this, so when you're having your cross moments, all you got to do is look for the joy of the next season in your life that's going to be birthed as a result of your cross moment. Yeah, I'm seeing cross-eyed right now. Which is an end to a season. I remember uh, early days for myself as a young, I graduated from university, became a social worker, and then went through a very interesting season of trying to figure out where I belonged and what, what, what my calling was. Because I think, you know, when God begins to call you, even in the midst of your own profession, it's an interesting time, and, 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 he, and he uses sometimes, this, sometimes frustration and things that are happening in your world. I remember feeling really confused and frustrated, and I felt like I was uh, not, I didn't know who I, was, who I was, who I was meant to be. I felt like all those years of study were almost going to waste. And, and, and I remember one clear moment uh, on a day, and the Lord spoke to me and said, you are no longer a social worker. You, 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 that's, that's it. It is finished. Now, I continue to be that from a practical point of view, but something died in me regarding my previous existence, my previous season. So was that a cross moment when something died in you? I'm confused. It's interesting. At that point, the Lord spoke to me about going to college. Uh-huh. And I went to college. And, of course, if that was the cross experience, college was the burial and notice allegorizing all of the events of jesus jesus serves as the primary example i mean he went through a cross moment just so to show you how you can do it too and then after that all this stuff began to get birthed and went into ministry and and, and fruitfulness began to happen all sorts of things began to happen Fruit, fruitfulness began to happen got to be careful when you're experiencing fruitfulness you could well you got to make sure to use insecticides so you don't get fruitfulness fr flies you know and and so you know you, you might be thinking well that's a terrible advertisement for college well it isn't because i feel that college is not the beginning of something college is the transition from something to something i i thought the college was the answer it wasn't this is your example College was that my moment in which I was leaving something, but prior to moving into something, it gave me a year or in some cases two or three years for some people, a moment in which I could focus on things and get things in my world that could get me into that next season that God had for me. And because You know, I don't know. College just really wasn't all that much suffering for me. Maybe I went to the wrong college. Because my, my college years were not really um, a, a cross moment in my life. I wasn't experiencing death. Now, granted, you know, I had to put some work in and do homework and things like that. But, um, yeah, a cross moment or something died in me, I, I wouldn't go that far. God always moves in three stages, stages past, transition, and future. Got a verse for that. And, and you may be going through a, a moment of that. I'll tell you, on the cross, if you're on that cross experience right now realize that god maybe is transitioning you into a great new season and a great year is coming up ahead you know, maybe he's transitioning you into like a dark and dismal and painful season i mean how do you know it's just going to be roses on the other side of it huh it is glad that, that would be the case okay the second thing that jesus said on the cross was my god my god 
Why have you forsaken me? Now, this is called the cry of dereliction. This is important because keep in mind, Isaiah makes it clear. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of dereliction points to this, I mean, this radical idea that the God-man has our sins on him and God the Father, you can almost picture him turning away. Matthew 27, verse 46, a very powerful scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I believe that the thing that happens on our, in our cross experience is separation happens. Separation. Yeah, so if you're going through a cross experience, you're separated from God. You know, but that don't worry. Just ha- look at the joy of the new thing that's being birthed, and you can get through with the fact that God's totally abandoned you. From people, from situations, God begins to separate you. I believe that a cross experience actually isolates you in a positive way and gives you something where you realize that there is nowhere else for you to go. There is a isolating and a separating, and sometimes we get so dependent on people. Yeah, where did you come up? Where did you come up with this concocted, bizarre, silly, uh, banal mishandling of the crucifixion texts? So dependent on on our, our need for others that God sometimes wants to get us away from all that. And it sometimes there's a cross or negative experience that isolates you. And guess where you've got to go? No, you've got nowhere to go except God himself. And that isolating, separating experience can be one of the most profound, life-changing, person-forming, future-dictating experience of your world. Can, can you show me one of the apostles, just one from the New Testament, who pointed out these amazing you know, life transformational sequences that we can go through in our own personal life cross experiences so that we can, yeah, you get what I'm saying here? Separate. Now, isn't it interesting? Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father forsook Jesus so that we don't have to be forsaken by God. Now, that's true. You can almost think of that as a gospel nugget. He was separated from God himself for that period of time so that we don't have to be. So we will never be separated from God. God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How awesome is that? However, God does separate us from others sometimes for a short season in which, and he will actually cut off sources of spiritual, emotional, physical, and even financial supply in order for you to go, where do I go? Where do I go? God says, I'm up here. Come to me. And a forsaking will take place. And you will even feel like your friends have forsaken you. Your, 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 or sometimes even your family have forsaken you. They haven't. It just feels that way. But ultimately, God wants to be your total source of supply, your total strength, your total whatever you need at that moment. That's what God wants to be for you. And he will actually cut off things, forsake you, and you go, God, where do I go? He goes, come to me. And you will discover God in that moment more than any other time in your world. Notice, none of this is actually based on a clear teaching from the scriptures at all. This is just him reading stuff into it. By that experience, how amazing is that? Number three, Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. 
Now, what an amazing thing to say on a cross. Now, he's in the midst of torture. He's in the midst of the most excruciating pain that, that any human being could suffer. And without prompting, said on the cross out loud, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Now, like I said earlier, if I was in that situation on the cross, I'd be pulling down every bit of power I had because that pain I was experiencing right then, I'd be going, God, just get them and zap them and kill them. And, ow, that hurts, you dog, and try and kick them. And he's up there going, Father, forgive them. This is just blasphemy. Give them for they know not what they're doing. I reckon the most powerful piece of this verse is the second part is, for they know not what they're doing. They didn't know they needed forgiveness. They, they're not at the foot of the cross going, we're wrong, we're sorry. That they were enjoying the pleasure of crucifying him. And he said, they forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And I find that amazing because the ultimate level of forgiveness is forgiveness to people who don't know they need it. And when you go in, in a cross experience, often a challenging time is caused by people. And in those moments, it is the people that are causing that, that God is giving you an opportunity to forgive them when they, know they, don't, when they don't even know they need it. Now, it's one thing for someone to come to you and go, I'm really sorry, what have you. And, and, and then even then we struggle to forgive them. Even then we're like, well, if I feel like it, I'll get there, I'll get around to what have you. But to forgive people who aren't even asking for it or don't even know they need it is the ultimate level of Christian maturity that exists. And it- Now, there's some merit to this point. And remember, what does Jesus teach us to pray? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's not like there's no merit to the concept he's talking about here. But overall, he's missing the whole point of the crucifixion. And it comes through that, because that's where God wants to get, get, get us. Now, here's the deal. Most, the forgiveness thing is tied into this theme that I just keep preaching about and believe that I, I just, I, I'm, on a, on a, I'm on a mission to, to, to address constantly the issue of the, the offense that happens in Christian people's lives all over the world. And the answer is forgiveness. And as we, as we begin to move into the zone of knowing how to forgive when we're offended, because offense is one of the greatest causes of problems, I believe it is, and you've heard me say this before, I believe that offense is the number one problem in the church. Not sin, but offense. Okay. By far, the number one problem in the church. It is the thing that happens the most in most people's lives. That they get offended, the offense creates a blockage between that person and another believer or another set of believers or the church and ultimately then in God. And the enemy then jumps in and grabs that offense and causes that to be a major wedge between that person's life and future in God. So what you, you're talking about when somebody sins against another Christian, right? And it happens time and time and time again. And every one of us, and I've said this to, to churches all over the world, uh, uh, don't worry. Uh, if you haven't been offended, you will be. Uh, just hang around a minute or two and, and you know, Jake will go for it uh, without intention, of course. See, here's the deal. Most offense doesn't happen intentionally. 
It happens unintentionally. And if I've ever offended you, I, I, I've never meant it, as far as I can tell. Uh, so he didn't mean to offend me by this bad mishandling of the text regarding Jesus' crucifixion. It was a completely unintentional offense. Offense. Uh, let me just check my heart. No, no, that's I'm all good. And, and but offense does happen. I lo- there's a scripture in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 15. Check this one out. Hebrews 12:15. That says, "See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many." I love that. That's, that's an interesting truth. See to it. Everybody say, see to it. I like that. See to it. It's like, in other words, go to it. It's, it's a proactive, aggressive, not aggressive as in aggressive, but it's proactive. See to it. Keep that scripture up, guys. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Okay, here's the deal. The answer is the grace of God. That's always the answer. The grace of God is that we understand our forgiveness and understand our ability and our need to forgive others in fact jesus now this is okay this is true jesus put a put a caveat around our forgiveness that is that if we don't forgive others he won't forgive us so we've constantly be always be living in the forgiveness of others so that we constantly can be living in the forgiveness of god so that no bitter root grows now actually he had that backwards okay the reason I say that is because we love God because he first loved us. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were at sinners, Christ dies for us. So we are first forgiven, and as forgiven sinners, we then forgive. That's what we do. I would reference Matthew chapter 18, uh, the parable of, well, the, the king who wished to settle accounts. It reads... Starting at verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay 10,000 talents, by the way, just think of it as two bazillion dollars. There's no way you're going to even be able to pay the interest on this thing. Oh, and by the way, you only have a part-time job at McDonald's. So, I mean, $2 bazillion part-time job at McDonald's, you're in trouble, right? That's how you have to think of that debt. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and for payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Think about a month's wages here. So maybe a thousand bucks or twelve hundred, something like that. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went out and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart.
So notice the flow. Forgiveness first from God, and that forgiveness then should flow then to our fellow human beings. Because truly, anybody who sins against us, that debt of sin that they owe us is nothing, nothing by comparison to the sin that we owe Christ, that we owe God as a result of our sinful rebellion and constant misbehavior and disobedience against him and his commandments, right? But God, who is rich in mercy, forgives our sins as a, uh, on behalf of Jesus Christ, on account of Christ, for the sake of Christ. And we who have been richly forgiven then richly forgive. You see? That's the flow here. But he had this backwards. We have to forgive, otherwise we can't be forgiven. It's not really quite how the biblical teaching goes. Rose up to cause trouble and defile many. The, the, the problem of the bitter root, the cause of the bitter root, is the lack of the understanding of the grace of God. And if we live in God's grace for ourselves and for others, then we will find that no bitter root gets in us and we won't, be, we won't cause trouble. Because offense causes trouble in our hearts. Suddenly you see people through deals. Imagine once again Jesus on that cross going, he could have hated the world. He could have hated everyone that he, could, that he saw going. You, and, and he was the very, he was the savior. He was sent to those people to save them and was in the process of saving them as they was torturing and killing him. And he goes, Father, forgive them. He expressed and lived ultimate level of Christ maturity that, that existed on the earth. And, and when we're in those situations, it's our opportunity to, to, to begin to come up to that level. Oh my goodness, I think the Lord deserves a hand just for doing that for us. It's amazing. Yeah, let's get, come on out here, God. Take a bow. We want to give you a, a round of applause. All right, number four thing that Jesus said on the cross. I tell you the truth. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 43. All right. You might think, what am I going to get out of that? Here's the deal. We take people into the... Yeah, what do you mean? What do you mean we're going to say, what do you get out of that? It's real simple. He was talking to one of the thieves on the cross who said, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus absolves him on the spot and says, you're going to be with me in paradise. I was spoken to a very specific person for a very specific reason. The victory that we experience. The cross experience that we have, the, the, the breakthrough that we experience, the thing that we're leaving, transitioning through, and then going and breaking into, whatever that is, we take people to that. You can't take people where you haven't gone. You can't take, and, and the best doorway to breakthrough is the cross. The best doorway to... The best doorway to breakthrough is the cross. I just... The, blasphemy. This is just unbelievable. The breakthrough is the cross. And your worst challenge that you break through in God becomes your greatest revelation and greatest power. And it's on that point that you become a great victor and you can take others into that. So here was Jesus on the cross. So you become a great victor and then you could take other people into victory. What? are you talking about? The Bible doesn't teach this anywhere. Cross, you know the story. On one hand, he had two criminals, one on either side. One of them was cursing him. The other was asking God for forgiveness. And the one who asked for forgiveness, he said, you're joining me in paradise. That's amazing. He was a criminal. 
He was, he was lost for eternity, but that he would have stayed lost for eternity unless he was next to the real cross, which is the cross of Christ. And Jesus took him. He, in a moment's time, maybe an hour after that, he was with God in eternity forever. That guy now is in heaven with Jesus. How awesome is that? We take people into the places of breakthrough that we experience. Boy, talk about an, uh, an adventure and missing the point. Oh, that text doesn't say we do anything like that. And you go, come on with me. How do you, how do you know? You know when someone's got authority in an area because they've broken through in that area. If they've got breakthrough in emotional areas or financial areas or spiritual maturity or whatever it is, as you've as see, you could be just like Jesus, and you can tell people today you will be with me in financial paradise. Today you will be with me in emotional paradise because I've experienced breakthrough. Now I can carry you through too. If you as you break through in that area, then you go. I've got the door. I've got the handle to the door, and you open the door, and you say, "Come on, guys, let's go into this victory." And of course, ultimately, that's what ministry is. Ministry is helping people break through into the areas. And I believe this year, many of you are going to have those cross experiences, but then break through and take people into that victory. I encourage you, connect leaders, take people into those victories that you have. Number five. Number five. He said in Luke twenty-three forty-six, in a loud voice, "Father." Into your hands I commit my spirit. Wow. What a... And you know what that means? That means Jesus is about to die, and into, his, into the hands of the Father he's committing his spirit. Because that's what that means. Thing. I love the fact that it says in a loud voice. He wanted, he wanted this said. He wanted this heard. And I believe that this is an issue of submission. That God, God, Jesus was experiencing a place where he was literally letting it all go and giving it, giving it to God. Because ultimately God says, I, I'm going to give you a cross experience so that you have, all you have to give yielded to is me. The submission thing is incredible. Now, I'm a huge believer I believe there are two great powerful forces that exist. Other than love, I think there are two great powerful forces that exist in us as believers. They're tools, trust and faith. And, and many believers never experience, never know how to determine which one of those is the most important thing to do. Because here's the deal. Faith is pushing in. Faith is hanging on. Faith is like, I'm going to do this thing and break through, because we need that. Who knows we need that? Some of you need faith. It's like, I've got it, I'm in, I'm on this thing. Well, trust is not that. Trust is, I let go. Do you know that in the Greek, the Greek word for faith is pistis? Do you know what pistis means? Trust. That's what it means. Trust is, I can't do this. Trust is, I submit, I yield, that's trust. Faith is, I'm committed, I'm strong, I'm busting through. Trust is, I let go, I yield. Notice he's not referencing any other authority than himself. These are just his ideas. I give in. Trust is, faith is, I don't give in. Trust is, I do give in. And, but some people give in, not out of trust, 
They give in when they should be in faith. So if, if you should be in faith and you give in, you're not trusting, you're just giving in. Whatever. Who's confused? Me. Because there's, I give in. I give in. Then there's, sorry, these people are blessed today. <laughs> then there's, I give in. Don't, I give, that's, I give in. I give in. This one smiles. Jesus gave in. With a loud voice. Sabakta, sabakta. Into your spirit. It's Eloi, Eloi, Laba, Sabakthani. And no, it doesn't say that he gave in. You're isogeting. I commit my spirit. I yield. Okay, here's the deal. He died. He could do nothing about it. See, trust is death. Faith is life. What? Again, you're not showing this from the text. You're just making stuff up. Trust is death. A cross experience gives you a Christ-like death experience where literally you die. And you've heard me tell the story of my, one of my early death experiences. Uh, when I was, we were planning the church in New York and I was, we'd gone from a full-time wage situation here, life is good, all's good, what have you, go and plant a church. It's amazing, and I've talked about this before. Paul and Sherilyn will know this, is that faith, vision, vision is a trick. How on earth do we get to vision? What are you talking about? God is so naughty. He is so sneaky. So he gives you these visions. And it's like... Really? Oh, okay. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And when, if you do this, I'm going to do this. And shows you a picture of the future. He did it to Abraham. Yeah, see, he did it to Abraham. So he's going to do it to you too, apparently. In fact, I did a study on the book. I did a study on Abraham. I did a study on Abram. Because God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. And I thought, what changed his name? At what point did the name change take place? I did a study on it. And I discovered 10 things that didn't change him. So I did this whole message on the 10 things that didn't change Abram. Because, but then in Genesis 17, because God, he was, here's the deal. God was promising him for 25 years, you're going to have a son. You're going to be a father of, father of nations. In fact, he kept on getting bigger, the vision. You're going to be a father of many nations. And Abraham in the early days was going, oh. Notice how he reads the text. Everything is about your life. See, we, you know, just like Abraham had a vision for his future, God's going to give you a vision for your future. Just like Abraham had his vision expanded and, you know, and added on to, and it got bigger and better. Same with you, too. You know, and Jesus went through a cross experience, so you're going to go through cross experiences. So what can we learn uh, through Jesus' words while he was having his cross experience so that he can have his breakthrough to the next season in his life? Because God had given him an expanding vision, too, you know? Awesome. Bring it on, the vision. Got him outside the tent, showed him the stars, showed him the sands of the sea. She said, it's amazing, it's amazing, it's amazing, it's amazing. After 25 years, Abram's over it. 
He says, I'm sick of your vision. He never said that. I'm sick of your promises. Never said that. Get out of here. And he said, Genesis 17, he goes, I'm over it. I'm done. And it says, Abr Abram yielded before God. He just collapsed. And God goes, good, I'll fulfill it now. And he says, I changed it. At that moment, changed his name. You're now Abraham. And just mm, so he went through a cross experience. Just after that, he had the baby. Who hates that about God? <laughs> Christian talked about the 11th hour. I reckon it's the 11.59. In fact, sometimes I reckon it's 12.01. In fact, I reckon, when you were saying that, I was thinking, no, it's more like 1 a.m. Because, and I had this thought that he lives in a different, different time zone. So what's our midnight is not his midnight. I don't know what it is, Paul. Daylight saving. <laughs> so God's going to have a vision. See, God, God gives vision, 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 vision. So we, we, went, we went to New York, didn't we, babe? Vision. So much vision, I was exploding. The whole city was going to get saved in a week. Obviously, he didn't tell me that bit, but obviously I extrapolated, I... I extend, but I got there. Oh, hell broke loose, Pam. Until you and some other friends arrived and helped us out. But it was like, God, happening. And the people are against us and finances. And just a hell. For eight months, we're just like, what's going on? And, you, you know, story, I had all these jobs, had three jobs and the family and playing the church. It was just like hell. But somehow through the midst of it, it was enjoyable. Looking back. Isn't it interesting? Wouldn't replace anything. You say this, wouldn't replace anything. Wouldn't do it again, but wouldn't replace anything. <laughs> and you know, I, and this, my, I had this job, I had to scrape paint off all these shingles. And I was up third story and thousand shingles and scraping paint off it in the middle of the summer. And I, I cried out for the Lord. I was on my cross. It was a ladder, but I was on my cross. I was on my cross. Oh, okay. Sounds painful. God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I literally did. I, said, what? I actually said, Lord, why have you brought me here? Why have you brought me here? This is not good. I'm earning $5 an hour, dying. I can hardly feed my family. Horrible. And he spoke to me. How quickly he speaks to you in those moments. Other times, dead silent. Now, he'll only speak to you if he's not in the part where he's turning away from you. Because when that happens and isolating from you, then you have to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But, you know. <sighs> Spoke to me. And he literally, it was almost audible. He said, I brought you here to kill you. <laughs> True story. Finest words of comfort I've ever heard. <clears throat> I thought you're doing a really good job. Story. And literally something in me died. Like it, I had a, I died, literally. Not like literally, I mean, something died. M me died. Something literally in a figurative kind of way died. Me, me, my vision, my thoughts, my ideas, my ambition died. And then that scripture came to me. Christ lives in me. 
And soon after that, the church began to break through and grow because they had that experience. Yeah, because you were crucified just like Jesus. You're the savior of your own church. Submission. We've got to understand the difference between submission and commitment. Commitment is faith hanging on. Submission is letting go of trust. Sometimes in a cross experience, it's not faith you need. You need to believe more. You need to let go. Jesus let go. Went to the grave in total trust. I mean, what does that even mean? You just need to let go. Okay, of what? The handlebars? The steering wheel? What are you talking about? That his father would resurrect him. He couldn't resurrect himself going, I'm getting up now. He's like, okay, resurrection time, here I go. You know, like. He died in faith and in trust. Amazing. Submission. I believe that submission is the earmark of a Christian. Not commitment. Commitment, the world can get committed. Isn't submission the sign of a Muslim? I mean, isn't that what Islam is all about? Submit? Anyway, you can see people go to the gym. They go to the gym every day. They're committed. But you cross their person. You cross their will. And you figure out whether someone's submitted or committed. Because you can get people to do something. That's commitment. But you, get, you cross their will. If, you, if your will is broken, you're now a submitted person. And you're a broken person. But that's what Christ does and builds in us. In a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Okay, number six. In John 19, 26, Jesus said, Dear woman, here is your son. Son, here is your mother. He, 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 okay, what, what is the point here? Is that I believe a cross experience actually helps us focus on others. I think selfishness yeah see because because jesus was going through a cross experience he was able to focus on other people and you know care for his mom because you know if he wasn't going through the cross experience he may not have been so aware of the needs of others and self-centeredness comes is removed from our world because essentially that's what we are who's found that they are far more self-centered than you really want to admit which i'm now getting you to admit yeah, this sermon proof of it. I've got we got a picture of all those hands. Uh, I'm putting my hand up. We are self-centered beings. We are selfish. The cross shifts that. And here is Jesus going, now, he should have been focused on himself. I'm dying for the world. Or whatever. And he's going, Oh, I've got a few things I've got to sort out here before I go. My mum's gonna be sonless and my friend's going to be motherless here we are guys he started joining he was focusing on others in the midst of his pain what what a savior we have incredible that is so when you go through a challenge what happens is god is causing self-focus to die and focus on others to begin to be resurrected and number seven. Oh, good we're almost at the end Last one. John 19, 28. I'm thirsty. Simple statement. I'm thirsty. I believe that what happens on the cross is we create and form a recognition of dependence. What? 
he couldn't notice he, we're just psychologizing these texts now didn't get that himself he was there i'm thirsty he had to be fed vinegar and i'm thirsty our need for others now it's interesting it might contra- what you it may, in your mind may contradict my previous point was that god gets us to a point where only we can only go to him but i also believe the cross experience does at points create a, a situation where we recognize our need for others and it's only others that's going to help us i need you so many of you thinking i don't need you <laughs> but that's all right i and here's the i remember pastor phil for years said this statement that only 10% of our future lives in us. 90% of it lives in our relationships with others. And God, okay, God, I will finish this sentence. He creates a situation in which we are dependent on community. Christianity isn't... What on earth does this have to do with anything Jesus was saying on the cross? This is unbelievable completely individualistic Christianity by definition is community we need one another even the the Christian concepts of friendship and fellowship by definition mean that we need one another your spiritual life is not complete without one another that's just from a fellowship point of view have you ever noticed that you can arrive at church feeling a bit average and you've hit some challenges and what have you you get in the church by the end of service or whatever connected with people suddenly joy's there hope's there purpose they go oh my goodness that's good see seven it only takes seven days and we're deluded again that's why we need church that's why you need connect group this week you need to get around other people because your need for fellowship your need for friendship your need for community is absolutely it's built into you and i think a cross experience means that you you, you, you search for people, you search for connection, you search for others. Also, the other thing is, I know what we are doing, what I'm doing as a person, what Mark Joseph Peter Kelsey, good Catholic name, isn't it? What Mark Joseph Peter Kelsey is doing right now, isn't 90%, is like 100% happening because of Pastor Phil and what he's created. And the team here, my friends, and we, we this is... I'd be, I don't know what I'd be doing. Have you ever had that thought? What would I be doing? Where would I be? Well, what? It's a freaky little thought. Like, where, where would I have ended up if I... And it was interesting because we... The story, you know, Bernie and I, we rocked up to this church in the third week that he existed. There's a little tiny Catholic school hall, 1980. And, and you know, the story where we went to find it, but they'd moved... They obviously heard we were coming. Uh, they moved and they, we found out exactly where the meeting was. But it was, we could have missed it. We could have, Paul O'Connell may not have gone to that parking lot to find anybody that may have gone to the old venue. Pastor Phil may have forgotten to send Paul O'Connell down to that parking lot. Uh, we, you know what I'm saying? It's like scary how big doors swing on tiny little hinges and little moments in which your future is connected to the people that God is trying to connect you to. Okay, so there's that part of it. Like, what, what things have we missed? Secondly, God connects you with those people. So the enemy has two plans, to keep you disconnected or to disconnect you. 
They're the only two things that he does. Well, one thing's for sure. This sermon disconnects you from what the biblical text really teaches regarding Jesus' crucifixion and what he said and what it meant when he was on the cross. He aims to keep you disconnected or to disconnect you, and he uses two tools to do it. Uh, He uses discouragement, and he uses uh, the other thing. (laughs) False doctrine and heresy like this. Narcissus like this. I can't remember what it is. I do nothing. Defense. Offense. To do it. Thank you. The message I just preached about 10 minutes ago. And God wants us, He, our lives are inextricably linked to the people that God wants us with. We need to fight for the people that God has put us amongst. And I'll tell you what, it is not perfect. You're not perfect. This church isn't perfect. The moment you join the church, this church became imperfect. <laughs> Some of you are going, I take that personally. <laughs> well, so you should. I do too. The moment I joined the church, it became even more imperfect. None of us, we're, 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 we're messy, we're messed up, we're a mess. There's a mess here, anybody? I'm like... This is crazy how, how, how not together we are. Many of you are looking at me this morning going, he looks pretty together. <laughs> okay, not many of you are thinking that. <laughs> Bernie's thinking that. No, she's not thinking that at all. Trust me, I'm not together. Have my bad days. Occasionally have a good day. Can't remember when. <laughs> I know this. We need each other. We need each other. And that's what Jesus was really trying to say when he said, I thirst. You know, whatever. Incredible. What Jesus said on the cross. What we, what is on the other side of that, those cross experiences is God's power. God's grace, God's breakthrough, and a better version. Got any verses that talk about God's big breakthroughs that are on the other side of our cross experiences? I don't see that in any of the texts that you read today. God's version of who you are in God. Let's close our eyes. Done. 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 Utter blasphemy. Man, uh, it's just getting worse by the day. All right, I got to go take a shower after listening to that and reviewing it. Folks, the, the, Jesus' death on the cross is all about Jesus being your substitute. Vicariously, your sins are imputed to him. He's bearing and carrying your sins and suffering the wrath of God in your place. Do you want to know what it is that your sins have earned? You look to Jesus on the cross and you look at his suffering and his pain and everything in the agony that he went through. And then you begin to see just how bad your sins really are and what it cost God to save you. Because Jesus is going through all of that suffering in your place. The God-man bearing the sins of the world suffering and dying on the cross because God has laid on him the iniquity of us all because he is pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity. And all of this stuff that 
Kelsey here talked about is just rubbish subterfuge and a complete distraction away from what the cross is really about. Sad, absolutely sad and heartbreaking. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, it's listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>